If you were here with us last week, you know that we started uh, our look at the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to use your pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you, we're going to start in verse 15. Uh, Ephesians is how God builds his church. It's about uh, life in the church, so to speak. Uh, The first half, we're going to see what God does to create his church. And we saw a a big uh, mountaintop view of salvation that God brought uh, into the lives of his people. We saw Paul articulating for us, this is what salvation looks like in your life from God's perspective. And in that, we saw each person of the Trinity uh, acting uh, for our salvation. The, The Father calling. Uh, The Father uh, choosing and calling people to himself, the Son redeeming, uh, shedding his blood, the the, the work of the cross, and then the Holy Spirit sealing, applying what Christ has done, uh, bringing uh, into our hearts and into our lives the reality of God's call upon us. And that, that section that we looked at last week began talking about all the spiritual blessings that are ours. And while we have no more... Uh, everything we need spiritually has is, is happened for us, has been given to us. The reality of that knowledge, if you will, the reality of that truth uh, still needs to work itself out uh, into our system, into our lives. And that's what I think we're seeing here when we turn to this verse 15, because we're going to see Paul pray. He's praying in light of everything that he's talked about and articulated. He's been praying in light of that that mountaintop overview. This is what God has done to bring salvation into your life. And he's saying, There's not, I'm not giving you new truth, but I want that truth to be real to you. We experience the reality of it. And so as you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read verse 15 uh, through 20, 23. Let's hear God's Word to us. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in, the holy people, in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the, his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and to understand and to know uh, your truth. Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? We ask in these moments, amen. Would you please be seated? When I was a kid, we would visit my uh, grandmother, and next door to my grandmother and grandfather, I don't want to leave him out, uh, was my great-grandmother. 
She lived in a cottage nearby. And I have vague memories of this. But one of the things I remember about visiting her was going up uh, to my great-grandmother's attic. Okay, She had lived in this cottage, really cool cottage, and had this attic that you could really walk into. Of course, when you were my age, you could walk anywhere almost. So we would go up there, my sister and I, and just check things out. We were looking for treasure, okay? Treasure. And uh, hoping to find something that was really cool. And we loved going up there and exploring, checking things out, and hoping to find something that we could just like, this is the greatest thing ever. But all we really found were just like hat boxes full of buttons and uh, my grandfather's old medical doctor's bag that he would used to bring around uh, with him. But it does remind me of a show that was on PBS called uh, Antique Roadshow. Y'all ever seen this or familiar with it? It's where um, individuals will take stuff from their attic, so to speak, hoping, fingers crossed, that they have something of value or something that has some historical significance. And so individuals will bring their stuff and an appraiser will meet them and they'll have a dialogue about the item and maybe talk about the history of it and things like that. And at some point, uh, the appraiser will say, well, here's what it's worth. And he may say, you've got a buck 25. Or you may say, you've got, you know, a thousand dollar heirloom here, something like that. In one episode, and at the time, it was the most valuable thing that was brought onto the show. This couple brought uh, a blanket. It wasn't just any blanket, but it was a blanket that was given to his uh, grand- grandmother's, given to his grandmother from, his, from her foster father, okay? And it was an Indian blanket, a Native American blanket. And uh, they knew it was significant. I mean, it's a Native American blanket from back in the day. And so they brought it onto the show, and they walk out, and the appraiser meets them. And the appraiser, later on, after he's kind of talked about what he, you know, this, this item, he, he, he said, my breath was taken away. I mean, he, he saw that blanket, and he knew that this is something special. This is something really valuable. And he went on to, to articulate to them, it's like, yes, like you said, it is a, a Native American uh, blanket, and uh, it's, it dates back to the 1840s, and uh, it's a Navajo blanket, and it's just not any Native American blanket, but this blanket would belong to a chief. It would be his blanket. It was made special for him. There weren't a lot of these around uh, that were created and made, and so it's valuable because of that. And it was really fine, this fine wool and that the water would repel off of it really easily. You don't want your chief wet. You don't want him getting soaking wet. And so he'd have this, this blanket that he would wear. And they've had this blanket in the family for, you know, generations. And the appraiser's beginning to, to get to the point where he says, okay, well, do you, um, do you know what this is worth? Do you have any idea what this blanket is worth? And they're just, no, that's why we're on the show. Okay, we want you to tell me what, what it's, how much it's worth. And he says to him, well, are you a rich family? He said, no, we're just average, average folks. He says, well, you've got a national treasure here. This is uh, worth maybe on, on a, a good day about $500,000. And you can imagine hearing that your blanket that you've been thrown over your chair for, centri- for generations is worth, you know, five hundred grand. They were just speechless. Oh my, they, could, they couldn't believe it. That all they go back to is our grandmother was just, she was just a poor farmer. She just had this blanket. We had no idea that of this treasure uh, that we had. And the appraiser's like, you have something of national value. This is a national treasure. 
And uh, you, this is a really big deal. As we look at uh, Paul's prayer here for the Ephesians, I want you to, to think about Paul acting really as an appraiser to us and, and telling us and encouraging us and pointing out to us that you have something of incredible value because you belong to Christ, because He has redeemed you, because He has called you to Himself, because the Holy Spirit is, is working and willing in your life that you have this treasure stored within you. It's, it's Christ Himself. It's the blessing of the salvation. And He prays that they would understand that, that that would sink into them, that they would know the reality of that for themselves. And so what I want to do with this, this passage is, is talk about the, certainly about the, the backdrop of this is going to be the value of prayer and the need of prayer in our lives. But I also want to look at, too, obviously, what is, how does Paul pray and what's the content of the prayer that he's articulating to God and that they are reading and, and be able to have in front of them themselves. And so here's what I want to do, three things I want to do. I want to talk about the value of prayer first, why it's necessary as it fits this context of this passage. And then I want to talk about just the content of the prayer. There's three specific things I want to, to, for us to think about and, and highlight. And then the response of prayer. Uh, how do we respond to prayer? Uh, how does how, ours responding to God help us in our prayer lives? And that'll make more sense when we get to it. Okay, so the first one, the value of prayer. Verse 17, Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's what, he, in a nutshell, what he's praying, he's saying, I'm praying that you would know God better, that you would have a deeper, richer knowledge of who he is. Now, think about that word, uh, know, and how Paul uses it here, that, that Paul wants them to know when you see no in the Bible, it communicates intimacy, closeness. It communicates relationship. Sometimes you'll read in the New Testament, you know, Adam knew Eve and they had a baby. Or blank knew blank and they had a child. That there's a knowledge that's going on there, a closeness and intimacy that's happening, a, a relationship. It's that kind of knowledge. It's not an understanding like... I know the facts and I can pass this test that I have to take next week. Knowledge of the Bible is important. Doctrine is important. Understanding theology is important. Understanding the, the content of the scriptures is important. But knowing them uh, in a relational way, knowing them in a way that affects how we live, it affects our hearts and our lives, is of the utmost importance. It, notice what Paul prays for. He's praying that they would know God deeply, more closely, okay? Nowhere does he mention uh, their circumstances. Uh, he, he knows his community. He knows this church. He knows they're going through hard times, going through difficulty. He knows that there's political pressure, there's cultural pressure, there's economic pressure, yet he doesn't pray for those things at all. He doesn't mention those things. If you did a survey of Paul's prayers, you would never see him mentioning uh, circumstantial things, praying this, this long prayer about, you know, uh, the, the need for a change in the emperor or a need for uh, cultural things to, to move and to be shaped in a, in a different way. He doesn't pray that way. It doesn't mean we don't pray for those things. We prayed for them a moment ago when we prayed the Lord's Prayer. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. We should be praying for our daily needs. We should be praying for the daily needs of, of our loved ones and other individuals. 
Uh, you go to 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, pray for those in office. Pray for the government. Pray for them. It's important that you do that. But it's just not what Paul is doing here. He's not praying for their economic stability. He's not praying for uh, a greater cultural influence or a new emperor, a new uh, political system. He doesn't pray for that at all. He prays that they would know God more deeply, more richly, more fully. Why does he do that? I think he does that because I think he's saying to us and he's reminding us that no matter what kind of bad circumstances that you are in, you're going to be equipped to deal with those things when you know him. When you know the God of the Bible, when you know the God of your salvation, when you understand the, the rich blessings that, that's being communicated to us from verse 3, when you know that, you're going to be able to deal with the bad things that come into your life, the hard situations that come into your life. Think about it like this. When you worry, what do you need? You need to know that God is your loving Father, and He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. When you're feeling guilty, when you're feeling full of shame, what do you need to know? That you have a Redeemer, that your sins have been forgiven, that they've been paid for. You don't have to pay them back anymore. You don't have to beat yourself up over them. They are, are done. They're forgiven. When you're full of fear, what do you need to hear? You need to hear that God in His providence and in His power and His sovereignty knows what's going on in your life knows your circumstances, and is able to meet every need in your life. The more we know God, the more we understand His, His Word and His life and His promises, we're going to be better able to deal with the bad circumstances that come into our lives. The next thing, uh, that's the, why we need to be praying or the, the value of prayer. Uh, let's think about what Paul prays for. What is it that Paul Praise for. And there's three specific things I want us to, to think about here. The first thing is, is hope. You see it in verse uh, 18 there, the hope of their calling. In essence, what I think Paul is, is asking when he prays this, he's saying, do you know the hope of your calling? Do you know the hope of the calling that's, that, that God has upon you, that God has for you in your life? Uh, the best way I know to explain it, the best way I've heard it explained is think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Starting in verse 26, he says this. I'll read it for you. He says, uh, think, of what you were, think of what you were when you were called. In other words, think about before you became a Christian and now that you are a Christian. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. For it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. What Paul is saying to them is, remember who you are. Remember who you were. Remember how salvation happened in your life. That you're not a Christian because you were the type of person that would believe in those things. Uh, you're not a Christian now because God saw something special in you. 
because you were prone to believe or because you're, you had this great potential or because you knew that you would respond in faith, uh, you were nothing. Uh, you, are the, you are a miracle. Uh, God called you to himself because he called you to himself. You're a believer today. You belong to Christ. You have eternal security, however you want it, forgiveness of sins. The list could go on. It's because of what God did. Because God came into your life and called you to himself, called us to himself. That is the hope of our calling. That is the hope of our salvation. And what it means for us is there's, we, we can't walk around and think, you know what? We look at other non-Christians and think they're, they're not going to become a Christian. I'm not going to talk to them. And there's no chance that that's going to happen in their life because they just don't strike me as the type of person who would ever become a believer What's the hope of our calling? The hope of our calling is you aren't that type of person either. It's a miracle that you came to Christ. It's a miracle that you were drawn to him because it was the power of God in your life. And he's able to do that same miracle in other people around us. The hope of your calling. To know the hope of your calling is to know that anybody has potential to get this hope, to receive this calling. It, we, it, it means knowing that God for anybody in anybody's life can change them, can turn a 180 in their life, can bring them out of this, this road, a series of just bad decisions that they're making, and can bring them back to themselves. All of us in this room are thinking about an individual that we know, that we wonder, is there any hope for them? Could God actually work in their lives? And the truth of God's Word is, yes. Because he is a God of what? He's a God of grace that works in our lives and works by his power. The second thing or the next thing Paul prays for is our inheritance. Verse 18, again, he says what he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That phrase, his glorious inheritance. What does that mean? I think to get to what that means, we need to get into the weeds a little bit because commentators will see that phrase, uh, his glorious inheritance, and there's two different camps. Some will say his glorious inheritance means stuff that we get, basically. It means an inheritance for the believer, for the Christian. There are others that will say that the, the, the glorious inheritance that's being described here is something that God gets. And in other words, we are God's, God's, we are God's glorious inheritance. Uh, our lives are his glorious inheritance. He considers us that treasure. I think what this passage is talking about, I think what Paul is describing here, I think he's saying that, that we are God's glorious inheritance, that we are God's treasure to him, that we are those riches that he gets. Sinclair Ferguson talks about it like this. He says, he says think about what God gets when Jesus, is di- when Jesus dies. Jesus, when he's up on the cross, when he's living the life, when he's teaching, when he's discipling, when he's ministering, he's doing miracles, he's arrested, and he goes through all that violence that's, that's done to him, he's thinking, about, this is, he's thinking about us as the inheritance he gets to present to God. He's thinking about us, we are presented to him to be known by him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about himself uh, as the, the great shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. He does it voluntarily. He wanted to do that. He wanted to lay down his life for them. Why is that important? 
Why is it important for us to see ourselves as God's glorious inheritance? Why is it important for us to have that status, to know it, to be convinced of it? Think about it like this. What do you get a man for Christmas like Tim Cook? Okay, so you know Tim Cook, uh, owner of Apple, runs Apple, uh, huge amount of wealth, huge man of means, huge man, man of power and connections. What do you get a guy like that for Christmas? He's got everything. Uh, what are you going to get him that's going to wow him, that he's going to see it's like, yeah, this is awesome, this is incredible, I will treasure this, I'll value this. What do you get somebody like that? Well, think about that with God. What do you get a God, the creator of the universe, the maker of the universe, who has everything, who is full and complete? What do you get somebody like that? And the answer in this passage is us. He gets us. He wants us as that treasure belonging to him, that you are of that much value to him. He's glorified with that, that that status is upon you. Do you see that? Do you understand that? That Christ died for you. He loves you that much. You're that important uh, to him. And what this helps us to understand is think about the moments in our lives where people are critical of us, or we feel the weight of of failure in our lives, or we feel the, the weight of we're falling short of expectations, um, whatever it is, those things sting and it's hard, but they're nothing compared to being God's treasure. They're nothing compared to having the status that I am God's inheritance. If I belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, you are his inheritance. You are that kind of treasure. Can you think of a better status that the world could present to you? The third thing, Paul mentions in this prayer is power, that we would know this, this power that he has for us. And for that, you've got to look at verse 19 through for 23. He talks about it in, in good detail. He says he wants us to know the incomparable great power for us who believe. That power, and listen to the, how he describes this power, that power is the same power that, that mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, Every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Think about the greatness of his power towards you to believe. It's his power that caused you to believe. According to his power, you came to faith in Christ. According to his power, you, you were shown that the gospel made sense to you. It made sense to you that, that Christ paid the debt for your sins. It made sense that, that you were acceptable to him now because of him. That's because of the power, according to his power, working in you. For example, if I'm a, a history student and I'm being taught about World War II and the things I believe about World War II are according to what the professor has taught me, it means my understanding of World War II is credited to my professor. In the same way, according to God's power within us is our salvation. That power was necessary for you to come to faith. That's the kind of power it took. Now think about how he describes this power. Okay? He describes it as resurrection power. He doesn't talk about, I mean, he could have used God as a creating power. 
I mean, if somebody can say a word and it comes into existence, if God can create the universe out of nothing, which is what I think Genesis teaches us, that's pretty powerful. Yet he doesn't describe it like that. He doesn't describe about natural disaster power. You think about a hurricane. Many of you were a part of Hugo in 89. You know the devastation that it can cause. And and this area wasn't even in the, uh, didn't even take the, the full weight and brunt of the storm. Or you've seen pictures or experienced tornadoes that have ripped through communities. It looks like a lawnmower is just buzzsaw through an area and everything is just shredded. He doesn't use that kind of language to describe the power that was necessary for us to come to faith. He describes it as resurrection power. Now think about, uh, think about it like this. What's the one thing you cannot defeat? What, can I, what can't you defeat? What can't our technology defeat? What can't our, our science defeat? It's what? It's death. We cannot defeat death. Uh, we can hinder it. We can, pr- we can keep it at bay. But it's coming. And that's the kind of power that was necessary to bring us to faith, to give us an understanding of Him. It took resurrection power to defeat sin and death in our lives. You think about that. Think about the power it took for you to come to faith. Think about the, the power it took to get you to come on a morning like this to worship Not because you had to, not because somebody told you to, but because you wanted to. It took resurrection power. That should leave us with a sense of awe. Some of us have been Christians for for many years. I can look back on my, before I was a Christian and, and becoming a Christian, and I think about it in terms now, and it's a miracle that I came to faith, came to faith. It's a miracle that this happened and that happened, that God orchestrated all these things, that at that right moment in my life, He opened my eyes to see the clarity, the reality of His Word and of His gospel and His truth. And it means that His power is sufficient to change you. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what sin habits that you are dealing with that just drives you crazy. Or maybe the sin habits that you've just given up on. But God's power is sufficient to change that, to break those habits and to sow the, the spirit of, his, of, his God, of God in, within us. The last thing is response of, of prayer. Verse 15, he says, Paul says, starts out, for this reason. What's he talking about? That for this reason, Paul launches into this long prayer uh, in 15 through 23. He's talking about what? He's talking about the passage before. He's talking about verses 4 through 14. He's talking about that mountaintop view of salvation. He's talking about that God the Father has drawn you to Himself. God the Son has, has shed His blood for you. That God the, the Spirit is, is sealing you, is drawing you to Himself. God has done all those things, and His response is what? It's to pray. His response is not to go on social media. His response is not to take a nap or go sailing or go fishing. His response is to pray Him, to praise Him. To pray, to, to, to interact with God over this, this great gift that he's been given to him. Our kids, when they were younger, I mean, they are young, but when they were little, little, uh, we put them in rest time, okay? And they would sleep. But as years went by, they didn't sleep, and we would still give them some rest time, some alone time. And they would uh, do stuff to occupy themselves, 
and every once in a while they come out and they'll say, Mommy, Daddy, look what I made. And they'll give us a picture or some kind of craft. In other words, they're excited about what they've done and they've got to share it. They've got to talk about it with somebody else. That's what Paul is doing here. He's been on the mountaintop. He's seen what Christ has done for him in dying. He's seen the power of God calling people to himself and the Holy Spirit working. That, that mountaintop view and his response is what? Is to pray. He sees who God is and he prays. Sometimes I'll read interviews or articles about uh, younger pastors, younger Christians asking older Christians like a Billy Graham, and they'll say, what regrets do you have about your life, and what would you do over again? And, and more often than not, sometimes they'll say, prayer. I wish I prayed more. And you may be at a point in your life where it's like, man, I need to pray more. I wish I could pray more. And you're at that point where it's like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray more. And so you've, you've got your time that you want to pray. You've got your list of things you want to pray through. You maybe you've got a journal and you've got it scheduled in and you do it for a week, week and a half, maybe two weeks. And it just, life happens and you just lose, lose it. Or you're going through a hard time. Uh, somebody's suffering, somebody's in the hospital, somebody's going through just needs prayer and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. And that bad season passes and things settle down and work themselves out and prayer just kind of dissipates from your life. But think about the approach of Paul here. Think about what Paul is modeling for us. If you want to have a a long-lasting, diligent, uh, habitual prayer life, it starts with understanding the gospel. It starts with understanding who God is. It starts with this mountaintop view. Paul is saying... This is who God is, and this is who, what God has done for me. I'm going to pray. If you're struggling to pray, certainly you need to be disciplined and, and be thoughtful about making that happen. But at the end of the day, what you need is not a bigger schedule or more time in your life. You need a bigger view of who God is, an understanding of who God is. Because a right understanding about God is going to move you to do what? To pray to Him, to trust Him to move towards him. That's what Paul is modeling for us. It's why we need God's word. It's why we read it in the mornings. It's why it's, it's preached. It's why it's so important uh, on Sunday mornings. It's why we have Sunday schools. It's why we have Wednesday evening uh, Bible studies, Monday night Bible studies, other groups. It's because of the, the necessity of God's word, which leads us to an understanding of who God is, which moves us closer to him to pray to him, to trust him, to know him, to experience him. And then we're equipped to deal with our lives, to deal with our spouses, our children, our circumstances in a way that brings glory to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are are weak. Uh, We need to be people of prayer. We need to be a church of prayer, which means we need to be a people who see your gospel, who understand it, not giving lip service to it, but it resonates with us. Its, it's truth is of great value to us. It's, it's rich. It's full. It, it gives us life. Uh, would you uh, shake us? Would you work? Uh, would you draw us to be a people of prayer that know the calling you have on us, that know the status of being your inheritance, of knowing the power that's able to raise Christ from the dead. It's the same power that's working within us. We ask all these things because you are good and glorious. In Christ's name, amen.